It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. guys it's so uh it's so good to be in the house of the lord today and uh to be fellowshipping with you all to see your beautiful faces so um let's let's go before the lord in prayer father we thank you for this day we thank you lord god that we get to um wake up and 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 rise and and give you glory uh we thank you lord god that you have um let your light shine upon us uh through the filling of your holy spirit um, through the washing and regeneration by the Word of God. And, and Lord, Father, thank you for your face being upon us, Lord God, this day. And we, we ask right now, as we get to, ready to get into your Word, that you would just be here with us, that you would open up the Word of God, that you would, um, Lord, teach us from your Scriptures and um, help us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. You are amazing. We love you. Um, we bless your holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, you know, um, uh, if, you ha- if you have an opportunity to get involved with Harder Dance, I strongly recommend it. As, as Tiffany said, she and Lisa will be, after service, they'll be in the back at a table, and they'll have more information about some of their needs. Uh, it's, uh, you would think that they're a crazy list of needs, but they're very simple. And, but most importantly, um, I, I want to encourage everyone to be praying for this ministry, to be praying for what God is wanting to do, because... Uh, the enemy has taken, has staked his claim uh, to uh, to boys and girls, to men and women, to um, to this world. But you know what? We we are in the process, as Jesus said, uh, the gates of hell will not stand against the church. And you know, sometimes we read that passage. I think I'm getting some feedback here. We read that passage and we think it's the gates of hell. We think it's hell assaulting the church. But reality is that it's an offensive statement that the church of God should be assaulting the kingdom of darkness. And therefore, his gates, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the work that God has and the work that he's doing in and through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. So uh, today's message is titled, Last But Not Least, The Rest of Them. Last but not least, the rest of them, and our passage is going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. But before we get there, I had a very long laugh with my mom and sister last Sunday because uh, it was uh, brought to my attention by Mr. Paul Writing, thank you Paul, who was watching online, uh, that when I I mentioned Corey Tim Boom, I referenced her book as uh, A Quiet Place. And I apologize if any of you went and looked up, oh, A Quiet Place, that sounds really good. And you went and looked up, much to your horror, I'm sure, <laughs> you saw that that's probably not the Corey Tim Boone I was referring to. So, let me back a little bit here. All right, let me walk over here. Just going to move over here a little bit more. Okay, here we go. Can you see me? Okay, good, good. So, yeah, uh, apologies. It's not A Quiet Place. It's The Hiding Place. So... Um, 
the hiding place. It reminds me of, my, my sister sent me this joke. There's this Christian comedian, I forgot his name, Tim Hawkins, I believe. And he talked about at the end of a show, someone asked him what his favorite scripture verse was, and he couldn't remember it. Um, he, it was Psalm 34, verse 8, where he's talking about, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. But he gave, he just wrote down this other passage, and he wrote it down, and um, later on, he's driving back. He's like, oh, no, I hope I gave them a right verse. And, and, and it, as it turns out, the passage that he selected basically said, uh, my loins are burning with fire. So um, I, I want to say this to you guys. Acts chapter 17, be a Berean. Don't always take what I say at face value. Uh, I'm not going to get my feelings hurt if you go back and look up some and say, hey, you were a little off there, Aaron, okay? Because I'm not perfect. There's only one who is, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I am prone to make mistakes. And, um, you know, if you, if you catch me in one, you know, um, hey, donut, next Sunday's donuts are on me, okay? So there we go. All right, so let's get into this. Hebrews chapter 11, last but not least, the rest of them. And so in, in, as we read this passage, uh, we, I, my intention is to finish this chapter uh, because next week we're going to go into a three-week series and we're going to talk about the fall feast. Uh, we've got uh, Rosh Hashanah coming up next week and after that we're going to have um, Yom Kippur coming up and then after that we're going to have the Feast of Sukkot. And I want to I spend a little bit of time as a fellowship understanding uh, what our faith is based upon, because Paul says in Romans that we are grafted in. So we are the wild branch, we're the wild olive branch, we're grafted in. So what does it mean as believers that we're grafted in? So uh, next Sunday, I want to I want to kick off and do that before we get back into Hebrews. So uh, pray for me. Uh, we got to get through this, so let's see, let's see how far we get. So, uh, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me, and I definitely uh, can sympathize with uh, the writer of Hebrews right here. Time would fail us. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
And so as we uh, try to close out chapter 11, uh, we see that the word by faith is used over 18 times. In fact, uh, that, that phrase by faith used 18 times this chapter. Uh, the word faith itself is used 25, 26, depending on uh, the, when we see the word faithful in verse 11. And so what is the author, what is the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit of Hebrews trying to get across to us? That we live, we walk, and we have a relationship with God by faith. And the works that God has called us to, the the things that God is trying to accomplish in this world, if we are faithless, God will not be able to use us. Uh, As uh, Colson said, you know, though we are faithless, God remains faithful. It is true. God will just look to someone else to get his work accomplished. But we have a unique opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. But we have to have faith. So let's start with uh, the first section. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. What, what is the point here? Well, we have to go back to Exodus chapter 14. I'm sorry, I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you guys. Um, so, And I want to encourage you to go back and look Look at the uh, the references. Look at these stories. Read them out because, as the writer said, uh, time would fail me to really dig in and talk about every one of these scenarios because they're so rich. But in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13 through 14, Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. I love that. I love that. Because as we understand from the story, uh, God told Moses to guide them. Now, God told him in verse 1 of chapter 14 what he was going to do. And he purposely, God purposely shepherds them to a place where they have the sea in front of them and mountains to the left and to the right and the Egyptians behind him. God did that on purpose. And sometimes in life, we find ourselves surrounded. There's no place to go but forward. We have our sins behind us, the wages of our sins the penalties of our sins, uh, the enemy accusing us of things that we've done in the past, uh, our, the guilt of our past, uh, God saying, or not God saying, but our, our conscience saying, well, God can't use you. Look at what you've done. And we feel like we can't go to the left or to the right, but God wants to make a way for us through the sea. And God made a way for them through the sea. He opened up the Red Sea. The people walked through as on dry land. That's kind of a weird thought, right? Just walking through these walls of water. Anybody ever been to SeaWorld? You know, you have, they have those tunnels where you, get, you walk through and like, you know, you're underwater in this tunnel. You see sharks swimming around and you see fish swimming around and there's little lobsters saying hi, you know, with his claws and stuff like that. And, you know, you kind of get the same image. They're walking through. They had this, uh, you know, tw- uh, several thousand years ago, they had this modern equivalent of the aquarium, their, their sea aquarium. They're walking through this and they're seeing fish. Maybe Dory is like passing by or something like that. You know, but how harrowing was that have been? Because I want you to understand something about the sea to an ancient person. The sea was always associated with chaos because no one lived in the sea. People would go out on a boat and they might not come back. 
The sea was filled with terror. The sea was filled with uh, uh, not understanding what could happen or, or there was this mystery about the sea. And so uh, when we see in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God hovered over the face of the earth, that the waters covered the earth, and God has to specifically say, let the land appear. It's an act of God bringing order out of chaos. And so the idea that these people are walking through the sea is a testament to the power of God and their trust in his ability to sustain and protect them. And so whatever seas we have in our life, whatever chaos we are going through, uh, whatever calamity it seems like uh, is coming to us, we have this assurance and trust that the Lord will walk us through it. And sometimes he doesn't walk us through it, but he allows us to walk above it. Amen? So we have to trust the Lord. It goes on to say in verse 28 through 30, the waters return. So, so Pharaoh and his army, they see what's happening. Um, there's a, if you go back and read this passage, there's something really cool there because it says that the angel of the Lord, who was actually leading them at the vanguard, actually left the front of them and came behind them and stood between them and the armies of Pharaoh along with the cloud that was leading them by day and a pillar of fire by night. So the angel of the Lord and this cloud stand between God's people and Pharaoh, preventing Pharaoh from conquering them, from slaying them, from killing them. And, and so finally, as the people are passing through, and we said, we, we said last Sunday that probably about 2 to 2.4 million people, imagine how long that took. As they're passing through, finally the last person, now the angel of the Lord and the cloud depart, and Pharaoh's men, they chased them down there, but it says the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. So it's such a great lesson because though we walk through the fire, though, as Isaiah says, the waters will not cover us, will not overtake us, we know that the fate of those who do not put their trust in the Lord is not the same. They will be overcome by the fire. They will be overcome by the waters. And so we just have to keep our eyes on the Lord. We have to stand still and see the salvation of God. We have to remember that it is the Lord who fights for us and not we ourselves. In our society in America, we, we especially in Texas, you know, we, we stand up for ourselves, right? Sometimes this is a very hard lesson for us to take in, to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to let you fight this battle by faith. I'm going to believe that what you're going to do about it is far better than anything I can do about it. I'm going to trust, Lord, that your solution for this problem is greater than anything I can do in retaliation. And you know, guys, that's how the gospel spreads. The gospel doesn't spread with a sword. The gospel doesn't spread with a gun drawn. The gospel spreads with people demonstrating the compassion, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. The gospel spreads when people like Jesus, when people like Stephen, as he's being martyred, we're going to talk about him, say, forgive them, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. That's how the love of God spreads. And so we have to be mindful as believers. We have to let the Lord fight our battles. Because that person that we are in conflict with, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, that is not our enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
but against powers, against principalities, against spiritual wickedness and hosts in heavenly places. Our enemy, if you see that person, that's not your enemy. It's that spirit behind that person. And so therefore, that's why Paul says, for our weapons of warfare are not physical, they're not carnal, but they are spiritual. And it is our spiritual weapons that God uses, that he manifests, that he inhabits, that tears down strongholds that we can't even begin to see. You don't know what's going on in that person's heart. You don't know if they were abused as a child. You don't know if their parents left, if they lost their parents, if they were orphaned. You have no idea what's in their past. All you're seeing is that manifestation. All you're seeing is the symptoms. All you're seeing is the outside consequences of something, of some evil or some hurt that's happened to them. You can't see into that, but God can see into that. And so I don't know why, I guess the Lord is just putting this out there. Maybe this is for somebody. But whatever situation you're in, you need to trust God in the process. Trust, believe, and seek him. Let him fight this battle for you. Notice what Moses says, you only have to be silent. Man, that's hard for us to do as Texans, you know? Be silent? No way, man. But God is calling us to do that. And if our heart is to see the kingdom of God being fulfilled on this earth, then we have to follow the example that our Lord Jesus set. The word of God says, as a sheep before her shearers, he was silent. He said not a word. Now, on the flip side, let's go to uh, the next section. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. We see the reference for this is in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Uh, it says that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people in Israel. I love that. You have God bringing the people into the land. He has promised to give them victory uh, in the land of Canaan, he has said, this is your land of inheritance. I have promised this. I have uh, set this aside. I promised this to your father Abraham. I promised this to your father Isaac. I promised this to your father Jacob. I promised this to the patriarchs. You are now going to step into the calling that I have for your life. And so Jericho represents one of the very first strongholds that the people encountered as they crossed the Jordan and as they are now trying to take what God has already said is theirs. But it says that Jericho was shut up, inside and outside. You see, guys, whatever God is calling us to do, whatever ministry or whatever effort or work or whatever promise he gives us, um, sometimes those promises don't just say, okay, all right, God said it. Okay, here you go. It's like when I played football in high school, um, you know, there were teams on our schedule. We would look at our schedule and say, okay, this team's going to be really strong and, and this team's going to be really, really bad. And so we would look at that team that's going to be really, really bad. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to blow them out. But you know what happened every single time? We still had to suit up, still had to put our shoulder pads on, still had to put our helmets on, still had to put our cleats on. We still actually actually go to the field. We still had to actually call plays. We still had to actually perform our assignments because you know what? The other team showed up too. And even though they were categorically horrible, they still put forth an effort. And we still have to put forth an effort. And so the same things, the same principle. God may have called you to something. God may have given you a promise. But you know what? There's still an effort on our parts. We have to pray in a faith. We have to pray in faith. We have to walk in obedience to what God has said. And so Jericho is not going to just roll over. They were shut up inside and outside. None went out. None came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand with this king and mighty men of valor. So Jericho had a king. Jericho had mighty men of valor. But yet God said, look, I'm going to give this to you. 
I'm giving this to you. I'm going to fight this battle for you. And I'm going to allow you to win it in such a way that God is glorified. And what is that way? He says, you shall march around a city, all the men of war, all the men of war going around a city once. No, not you shall break down the walls and, or not you shall um, you know, take out your swords and, and run at the city. No, you're going to march around a city. And this is what you're going to do. For six days, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns. Those are shafars before the ark. The ark is the uh, portable um, representation of the seed of God, uh, his presence. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, you shall hear the sound of the trumpet. Then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Wait, so wait, wait. We're not going to use trebuchets. We're not going to use catapults. We're not going to dig underneath the walls. We're not going to use all of our engineering uh, feats of capabilities to, to take this out. No, God says, no, I'm not going to let you do this this your way. I want you to do this my way. And when we do things the way that the Lord prescribes, more often than not, it starts with praise. More often than not, it starts with worship. More often than not, it starts with our surrendering our thoughts, surrendering our ways, surrendering our capabilities or whatever it may be, giving that to the Lord and saying, Lord, here you are. Here's what I have. Here are my talents. How do you want to use them? That's a question we should be asking ourselves every day when we wake up. Lord, here I am. You've given me health. You've given me uh, a mind. You've given me these abilities. You've given me these thoughts. Lord, how would you use that today? How would you use my skills today? Lord, how would you use my intellect today? Lord, how would you use the knowledge that I have today for your glory so that you fully receive the glory and not me? And so he says, the wall of the city will fall down flat. The people then shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, he said, guys, you won't believe what I just heard, right? Hey, uh, get the engineering plans back out. We're going to use the catapults, right? We're going to use all of our stuff. No, that's not what he said. Joshua calls the priest and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant. Let seven priests bear seven horns, trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward. I heard it from the Lord. I believe that God said he meant what he said. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. So we are going to move forward. Now, I'm saying that to you, and I'm speaking as a person who loves to drag his feet, especially when God is saying, Aaron, I want you to do something. I'm like, okay, all right. I like to drag my feet a lot. But you know what? We need to demonstrate faith of obedience by moving forward. When we've heard the Lord speak, now we're going to talk about Gideon, but when we've heard the Lord speak, when God has confirmed whatever it is he wants us to do, he's like, Aaron, I want you to buy Shipley's donuts today. Lord, I don't know. You know, these donuts are not so good. Move forward. I don't know why I said that. Whatever. Because um, we, we totally got, uh, we didn't get Shipley's today. We got something else. So anyway, um, sorry, I'm getting off track here. So we need to move forward. He says, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. So you skip down to verse 20. So the people shouted. It's the seventh day. Uh, they've marched around seven times. The trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. You see, the difference between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob versus all the other gods or versus all the other idols that we could follow or pursue is that the works that God accomplishes through his people, as I said before, it begins when we um, situate ourselves, when we put ourselves in a posture of worship and in a posture of obedience. 
You see, when we give God glory, when we fall before his feet, when we dig into his word, when we say, Lord, I trust you, um, Lord, I can, I can plan my ways, Lord God, but, but we're trusting that you will establish, that you will work things out. You see, the difference is when we give him glory, there's, there's the place where power comes. There's a place where, where strongholds are brought down. There's a place where, where things are, are flipped upside down, as they spoke of the apostles and, and the disciples in the book of Acts, that these were men who turned the world upside down for the kingdom of God. And so we see the same thing here. This city falls down. They captured the city, and it was an amazing victory, and it was spread throughout the land. By faith, they trusted God. God had a solution. God had a game plan, and they believed and trusted in what God said he was going to do, and it came to pass. Moving on to the next section. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, her story is very controversial because Rahab uses deception to hide the spies. And so we say, well, we're not supposed to lie. Um, we see her chapter in Joshua chapter, we see her, her story in Joshua chapter two, verse one through seven. It's kind of interesting that uh, the, the writer of Hebrews mentions the falling of Jericho, which occurs a little bit later in Joshua, uh, before the story of Rahab. But Rahab's story is so important. I don't want you to miss how important she is. Rahab is one of the most important women in the Bible. Why? Verse 1 through 7, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who enter your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Skipping down to verse 7, or verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Verse 12 and 13. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Why is Rahab so important? Rahab is important because in a land, in a city, of idolatry, in a city of evil, in a city of false uh, false gods, in a city of people that were completely 180 degrees opposite from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, she is a woman who hears about the glory of God and she believes. And not only does she just believe for herself personally, but she believes for her entire household. Rahab doesn't just come to God by herself. She doesn't just save herself, but she saves those with her. She uses the knowledge of the Holy One to bring those into her family into a closer relationship with God. And maybe, maybe you have people in your household that don't know the Lord. I want to encourage you, be faithful. Don't give up. Stay committed. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep living like Jesus. Keep letting your light shine because we know that God is faithful and God will do a great work in and through you if you just trust and believe in him. Rahab ends up saving her entire household. 
And we see at the very beginning, this is the very first mention of the scarlet thread, uh, which uh, a lot of scholars look to and say, oh, these are, the scarlet thread represents Christ in the Old Testament. We see different areas where we see the scarlet thread because she uses a scarlet thread and hangs it out by her house. And so when the men come in, the men of Israel, and they come and they start assaulting and, and slaying the people of Jericho, they see this thread. And you know what? They recognize that the person under that house is to be protected. And so too, when the blood of Jesus covers us, we are safeguarded from the destruction that is to come. We're safeguarded from God's wrath. Second Thessalonians, God has not appointed us to his wrath. And so Rahab represents that. But not only that, but her faithfulness kind of puts her in a situation where she gets introduced to this dude named Salmon. So Rahab and Salmon get along. Rahab and Salmon get married. They have a kid. His name's Boaz. Boaz one day is just minding this business when this girl named Ruth shows up. And Ruth and Boaz get married. And they have a son. And his name is Obed. And Obed grows up. And he has a son. And his name is Jesse. Jesse has seven sons. The last of which is David. This woman who displayed faith becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Because the messianic line, Jesus was born of, of Mary, who was a direct descendant of David. And, and his, his, his father, Joseph, not his biological father, was also a direct descendant of David. So this takes you all the way back that the Savior of the world, the one who created the heavens and the earth, Colossians speaks of Jesus as holding all things together. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God in flesh, Emmanuel, he chose to be born through a prostitute. Isn't that amazing? Our past claws at us and says, oh, you've done these horrible things. God can't use you. Oh, you said these things. You've thought these things. There's, oh, you're not perfect. God says, no, you're perfect. Because I can display all my glory through you. God is the one who raises up a prostitute. God is the one who raises up disciples, people, fishermen, uneducated, uh, uh, unlearned. God is the one who raises up these people and uses them for his glory. And the world is astonished because the world looks upon us as foolish. But in the, in the eyes of the Lord, we are beautiful and precious. Isn't that amazing? Rahab, by her faith, saves her house and becomes the ancestor of the Lord. Moving on, what more shall I say for time would fail to tell me tell you of, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets? And then the writer goes on to say uh, some of the things that they accomplished. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. God used these men and women in a mighty way. And God, the same God that used these men and women, he's looking and searching throughout the earth. The word of God tells us that he's looking to make himself strong in those who would be willing to be used by him. 
I love what Tiffany said. She said um, at 29, she goes to the Lord and says, Lord, um, I've wasted this part of my life. What do you want to do with the rest? You know what? God is looking for every one of us. He's, he's just waiting for someone to come and say that. It's never too late. It's never too late. Every day when you wake up and you have breath in your lungs, it is never too late and say, God, you know what? I squandered this. But you know what? Lord, whatever I have left, I want you to have it. What would you do with it? Lord, what, how would you use me? How, how do you want to use my talents? How do you want to use my gifts? Lord God, how do you want to use my influence? The circle of influence I have, Lord God, how would you use that? And God is waiting and searching and looking for anyone who is willing to say, like Isaiah chapter 6, Lord, here I am, send me. That's what the Lord wants. Let's talk about some of these people. Gideon. Uh, you see a story in Judges chapter 6. He leads 300 men. The original 300. Probably not. Actually, yeah, it was before that. It was before, before Thermopylae. Um, he leads 300 men to defeat the Midianites and the Malachites. And you know what he does? You know, and, and you know what's ridiculous about this? Right? He, he doesn't have a sword. They don't have swords. They don't have, uh, you know, they don't have like uh, AR-15s or anything like that, you know, rocket launchers. They have trumpets, shofars, ram horns. They have empty jars with torches in them. How ridiculous is that? Mike was in Marine Corps. I'm sure Mike would say that is probably not the way you want to plan an assault right there, right? That's crazy. And you know what's even more crazy about that? It's not like... Gideon didn't have volunteers. He had over 32,000 men that volunteered. And God said, <laughs> too many. So he whittled them down, got down to 10,000. God's like, mm -mm -mm, too many. Got down to 300 people. You know what that tells me? God is able to do much with little, just as he's able to do much with great. And we may think, oh, God, I don't have a lot. All right, I don't have, you know, a PhD, or I don't have a million dollars, or, you know, I don't have this and that and the other. And, you know, we say these things to the Lord. You know, God, I don't have. God, I don't have. God, I don't have. God's like, I don't care about what you have. I want you to care about what I have, because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So God's not concerned about what we have or what we don't have. God is concerned about our hearts. Are we willing to give him what we have? Are we willing to say, Lord, here I am. Use me. Send me. And God is like, yes, that's what I want. And Gideon, with these 300 men, these trumpets, these empty jars in which there were torches. How does that work? You know, because I'm thinking the torch would go out like it was covered by a jar, but whatever. The Lord. They defeat the Midianites and the Amalekites. But I want you to no take note of something, because before that happened, something crucial happened in Gideon's life. The people were worshiping Baal. They had a, a, they had a statue dedicated to Baal. They had an altar dedicated to Baal. Baal's, Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce it, is one of the Canaanite gods. And Gideon, as the Lord calls him, he is given this strong conviction that he needs to remove the false worship from his family's life and from the area of his town. So Gideon destroyed the altar of Baal. You see, when God is using us, when God wants to accomplish a great work through us, there is no room for 
other gods. In Exodus, as God is giving the law, one of the very first primary laws that we see is that you shall have no other gods before me. Not me, not Aaron, but the Lord, right? You should have no other gods before him. You should have nothing that uh, obscures your view of the holiness of God. You should have nothing that dominates your thoughts about who God is. You should have nothing that you are bowing down to, whether physically or in your heart, that allows you or that keeps God from being first and preeminent in your life. You shall have no other gods before him. And so the first thing that Gideon has to do is he has to remove the idolatry from the area. And, and when he does that by faith, God then uses him in a great way. And by the way, they weren't just fighting up against a few Midianites or Amalekites. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says that their number, they were numbering like locusts. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. There were so many Midianites and Amalekites, you couldn't even number them. And yet God used 300 people, 300 men with trumpets and torches, and God brought about a great victory. And so that tells me that God is willing to use any one of us. In fact, I think it's in the book of Joel. It talks about uh, the day of the Lord. It talks about how uh, when uh, the, the sons and descendants of David, it says that one of them will put to flight a thousand it says that uh, God will work so mighty in these men of Israel uh, that they will be able to uh, seemingly have superpowers, just be able to conquer and do great things. You know, uh, God is still in the business of wanting to use us greatly and multiplying our effectiveness. Let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Bark. Uh, when we talk about Bark, Bark is another guy here, and um, Bark is an interesting person. He led an army of 10,000 men from Zebulun and Naphtali. So these are tribes that settle to the, the north, the northeast. If you look at a map of Israel, uh, you see the Dead Sea. You go north, you go to the Sea of Galilee, and then to the west of it. Uh, sorry, I said northeast. I meant northwest. You go to the west, and you see an area of Naphtali, uh, just as kind of near the area where Nazareth would be, and then Zebulon is up in that same region. And so what, what was interesting is that what God did with Barak is that he used them to defeat the army of Jabin. Jabin was a Canaanite king, and his army was led by a guy named Sisera. And what they had that the Israelites didn't have was that they had iron chariots. And iron was a technologically superior uh, instrument for warfare. It's hard. Uh, most likely, the Israelites, if they did have metal, they were working with bronze, which is softer. But also, they had chariots. And the effectiveness of chariots, especially against uh, uh, ground troops, um, is it's... It's really, really very interesting to see how just even a few chariots uh, can have a greater advantage over several hundreds of men on the ground. And so God used them. God used this army. And um, notice that in Judges chapter 4 through 5, um, Barak had someone along with him who helped him. Because Barak was, he was fearful in his faith. He was, he was kind of fearful about some things. He didn't really want to, like, move forward. And so God brought Deborah, the prophetess, to help him. You know, that's like all of us. Sometimes we, we feel like, you know what, I feel like the Lord is calling me to do something, he's telling me to do something, but you have this fear. And so God is so faithful, he will bring people alongside of us and people who will encourage us. You know, someone, and maybe some of you are Deborah's in someone's life. 
Maybe you're not the Barack, but maybe you're a Deborah. All right? And I just encourage you, keep encouraging people that God places in your life. You never know when they're going to need. Uh, there might be a timely word that God uses through you to speak to that person. It'll be just the encouragement that they need. And so uh, Deborah encourages Barak, and Barak and Deborah have this amazing victory. Uh, in fact, Sisera's fate, if you go back and read about him, uh, he didn't end too well. In fact, they, uh, um, I'm trying to think of a good dad joke, but I'll, I'll just, I won't. Basically, he died with a, a tent peg nailed through his head. So that was intense to think about that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Please forgive me. All right, so Samson, let's move on. His life is chronicled in Judges chapter 13 through 16. Now, Samson is an interesting man because literally he had, he had the potential to be the greatest judge, the greatest leader Israel had ever seen. Everything about him was, from the moment he was born, the moment he was conceived, uh, his young life, everything was greatness written upon his life. Yet, like uh, every person, he succumbed to, um, he succumbed to sin. In Samson, we see that he succumbed to lust, he succumbed to pride. Uh, all the things that we as, re- we, pe- we as people we wrestle with, these are things that he succumbed to. But in Judges chapter 13 through 16, you go back and read about his life. We all know his story very well. But what I want to point out is that um, I want to point out his death. I want to point out his death. Because it is at his death that the Bible tells us he killed more Philistines than he ever did in his life. It is at the point where he finally surrendered, where he finally said, you know what, Lord, please forgive me. I, I've been so wrong my whole life. I've been blinded. Ironically, now he's physically blinded, but he real, he recognizes that he was spiritually blinded his whole life. And so in that last moment, the last moments of his life, he he surrenders his heart and, and God opens his, his spiritual understanding and says, uh, and, and the Lord restores his strength. And so even though he's laboring in shackles, even though he's being laughed at by the Philistines, uh, they're parading him around, uh, they're making fun of him, they are reproaching the name of God because they have uh, taken the Lord's champion and they've, uh, they've conquered him. And yet in that moment, God strengthens him and he brings down the pillars uh, of the temple and more of his enemy are killed in the moment where his life is passing from him than when he was alive. And and what's important about Samson to understand is that he is a type of Christ. He's a type of Jesus. And, And Jesus, his death and blood defeated the penalty of sin. He set at liberty all those who were in bondage to sin and called upon the name of the Lord. In fact, great salvation and redemption came through the death of our Lord and Savior. We read about his words. We read about the things that Jesus did. But you know what? If we don't put our trust in the fact that he died for our sins, if we don't put our trust in the fact that he rose again for our sins, we don't have eternal life. And there are many people who look at Jesus and they say he was a great philosopher, uh, he was a great holy man, he had a lot of great things to say, and they applaud the words of Jesus, but they don't put their trust in him. And if you don't put your trust in Jesus, you are destined to be eternally separated from God. But thanks be to God, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? And we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, he now has the ability through his death, burial, resurrection, to save all who will call upon him. Moving on to Jephthah, we see his story in Judges chapter 11 through 12. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. Kind of getting a theme here, right? Um, 
someone who is not seen as uh, someone being worthy in the eyes of man. I want to I want to talk about that real quick because here's the reality. Uh, people, we offer our estimations of who is and who is not worthy. We offer our estimations of who's deserving of our attention and who's not deserving of our attention. But you know what? We're, thank, thankfully, God is not like us. Thankfully, God's peace is available to all. God's salvation is to all. God's love, his mercy, his kindness is available to all. And God does not look upon us with partiality. Right? He doesn't say, oh, well, you're rich, so I'll, I'll listen to you. Or, or, no, you're poor, so you're more spiritual. He doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't matter who you are. Male, female, uh, rich or poor, black, white, whatever. God's salvation is available to all. We are the ones who, because of sin, put barriers and assign titles to people. We are the ones who look down upon someone else because they don't look like us or talk like us or come from the same background that we have. God is not like that. God is like, no, you are my child and you are made in my image. And so Jephthah, this guy, he's a son of a prostitute. You know what happened to him? Well, his, his father's sons, they toss him out of the house. They say, you have no inheritance with us. And yet by faith, he still delivered his people and Israel from the Ammonites. The Ammonites, by the way, God had used this group of people because, well, surprise, surprise, they had, even though Gideon had done a great, great work and they had turned back to the Lord, just like we're all, we're all want to do, they had turned away from God again and they started serving the Baals, the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, gods of Sidon, gods of the Ammonites, gods of the Philistines. They were worshiping everything except for the Lord. And that kind of is endemic of our society today, right? We worship everything but God. We worship, um, you know, we worship sex, we worship drugs, we worship alcohol, we worship uh, so many different things, things that I would say I probably get in a lot of trouble if I say them right now. But the reality is all of our focus and our attention should be on the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes when difficulties come, right, maybe it's not because we're being so spiritual. Maybe it's because there is a false god or idolatry in our lives. And maybe God has sent that difficulty in the hopes that we will say, you know what? I am, God, you're right. My attention is on this thing when really my attention should be on you. All right, a lot of times we get it twisted. Most of us, 90% of the time, we think we're Davids. Someone's throwing a spear at us, God. We don't realize we're actually a Saul. We're throwing spears at others. And so that's why David in Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart. Renew within me a steadfast spirit. We need to ask God, as David said, Search my heart, Lord God, and know me. Because the reality is the heart is wicked, it's deceitful. Right? The heart says, no, you're great, you're fine, you're wonderful. It's them, they're the problem. As you drive off cursing them out, as you drive off thinking horrible things about that person, as you drive off wishing death on them, oh, you're not the problem, they are. No, God is saying, no, I want your heart to be right with me. And I'm going to allow this calamity, I'm going to allow this difficulty, I'm going to allow this, this trial in your life. It's not because you're righteous, it's because you're in sin. And I'm going to allow this to happen so that you can get your eyes back where they need to be. 
So the people were doing that. They were following after other gods, and yet God raises up their deliverer in a man that they have rejected. This man who was the son of a prostitute, his, his, his origin story was not a glorious origin story. But God doesn't care about that. The Lord doesn't care about our origins. He cares about our destination. He cares about the process of getting us to that destination. And so we can be thankful that it doesn't matter how we begin. What matters is how we end. The next chapter in Hebrews chapter 12, when we get there, it's going to talk about running our race with our eyes on Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. We need to live our life in such a way that our eyes are upon him, that we are running to him, and we are not running back to those things of our past. David, uh, we know David. I don't need to talk about David, right? He's anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16 as the next king of Israel, but he wasn't king until he was in his 30s. That takes faith. God came and said, hey, you 17-year-old kid, I'm going to pour some oil on you. You're going to be the next king. Really? But it's not going to be tomorrow. And it's not going to be next month. And it's not going to be next year. And it's not going to be in the next decade. It's going to take some time. But he held on to the promise that God had said. Right? All his promises were yes and amen. So also, he was God's choice, but he wasn't, he wasn't even his father's choice. You recognize that? You realize that? Jesse had seven sons. When Samuel comes and says, hey, God wants me to anoint the next king from one of your sons, what does Jesse do? He says, okay, here's six of my sons. He doesn't even send David. He sends his older brothers. Jesse had no confidence in the fact that David was the man whom God called after his heart. But God did. Because God said to Samuel, people look at the outer appearance, but God is the one who looks at the heart. God sees us for who we are. And, you know, that's another lesson we have to take in mind. We can look righteous. We can sound righteous. We can sound holy. But God sees who we really are. All right? So it's better to be humble before our king, better to be humble before God, and allow him to show us the areas in our lives so that we can be right in his eyes. In 1 Samuel 17, we see that by faith, David defeated the Philistine giant of Gath. Gath was huge. I'm sorry, Goliath was huge. He was not a small man. Uh, he was a man of great and imposing stature. And how did he defeat him? He defeated him with a sling and a stone picked up from the nearby creek bed in the Ela Valley. And then he used the giant's own sword to slay him. God did amazing things through David. And David is a testimony of faith. We go on to Samuel. Samuel, his origins are in 1 Samuel chapter 1. He's brought into this world by a barren woman named Hannah. Uh, her name means the Lord is my oath. She was the second wife of another man. Of, um, and, and she's praying. The, the other wife was having children, and so she felt as if she was uh, not, uh, uh, not worthy. She felt as if she was a failure. In fact, we talked about barrenness before, that barrenness in that society was seen as a curse. And so here she is. She, she goes directly to the Lord. And sometimes we take our problems to everyone else but God. Hannah took her problems to the Lord, and she prayed, and she said, God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And that's why she named him Samuel, which means Shmuel, which means uh, called by God or named by God or heard of God. 
And so Samuel is called by the Lord at a young age. And so we go on to read that these, these people, they conquer kingdoms. We can see that in their story. They enforce justice. They obtain promises. They stop the mouths of lying. Of course, I got to talk about Daniel, right? Daniel, what an amazing guy. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 19 through 24, if you want to go back and look at that. We see that Daniel is thrown into the lion's pit. Um, and in fact, uh, the king Darius is absolutely freaking out and concerned because he's like, you know, Daniel's a righteous man. And how can I let this happen to him? And, and so Daniel's like, dude, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all good. And we see later on, he says, oh, king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. I want us also to understand something too. When we go through trials, it's not just for us. Our trials are on display for people around us. So that when God brings us through, whatever he's going to bring us through, people will see the glory of God and they will give God the glory. They will worship God. In fact, Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar was such that Nebuchadnezzar ends up writing parts of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan, godless man, is a man we will probably see in heaven because of the testimony and witness of Daniel. So uh, we need to understand that our trials aren't just for us. Our trials sometimes allow people to see God in us, and we need to let that light shine. Amen? Quench the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, these, are, these young men, of course, uh, they did not bow down uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. The image that Nebuchadnezzar erected after Nebuchadnezzar had, had this dream in chapter 2 that God had given him. And, and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter because Nebuchadnezzar is like, Hey, you know, you need to do this. You need to, you need to get this right so I don't kill you. It's like, I can kill you. I can take your lives away. But they were not afraid of the person that can take their life away physically. They committed themselves to God who has the power to destroy the soul. And so they say, look, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, I love this part. Catch this. Even if God doesn't do it, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. You see, when, when Jesus came and when he died and abolished the power that death had over us, because why? Because he was raised again, and we know that if he's raised again, he's the first fruit, which means that if we follow him, we're going to be like him. We're going to be raised again. We're going to have an eternal life in through him. Guess what we don't have to fear anymore? Death. What can a person do to us? Oh, kill you. <laughs> and to live as Christ, to die as gain. When we pass from this life, guess what? We are in the arms of the Lord. And so, therefore, fear of death is no longer part of the equation for the believer. And so what they're saying right here is like, look, you know, I, we get it. You can kill us. We get it. The fire is not, a, it's not a fun thing. We're not saying we love taking fire baths or anything like that. You know, this is, that's serious, right? We get it. God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, it's okay. And we will not worship anyone but the Lord. Later on in that chapter, they're thrown in there. Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay, all right, whatever. Tried to reason with these guys. And then he says he was astonished, and he rose up in haste. 
And he declares, he declares to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? And he answered and said to the king, True, O king, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. You see, the Lord showed up. Their faithfulness, their belief, their steadfastness, God said, you know what? I'm going to show up. And I'm not going to allow you to go through this by yourselves, but I'm going to be there with you. I promise never to leave or forsake you. I will be with you there. I will allow you to, to experience my peace, which surpasses all understanding. I'll allow you to experience the comfort that Jesus has when we go through trials. And so we can have that with him. And it says that uh, they were walking unbound. We do not have to be bound by fear of what men can do to us, what the world can do to us, what society can do to us. We can be free in Christ because whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Moving on. Women receive back their dead from resurrection uh, by resurrection. So two stories here, two women here, uh, one related to Elijah, the other related to Elisha. We see uh, the widow of Zarephath. She was of the kingdom of Sidon, which is modern day Lebanon today. And we see her story in first Kings chapter 17, uh, verse 17 through 24. This is a woman who was a Gentile. By the way, we will see her in heaven because she believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how do we know this? Look at verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in uh, in your mouth is truth. She's a woman who came to the knowledge of God. This I, this woman who worshiped false gods, this woman who was uh, a foreigner of the nation of Israel, she came to a conversion because of the faith uh, that she experienced in believing that God could do a work through Elijah. What did Elijah do? Elijah raised her son from the dead. Then the woman of uh, Shunammite, Shunam, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 18 through 36. I'm sorry, I can't spend as much time as I want to spend on these, but you're going to have to go back and read these for yourselves. Uh, she is a woman. She, she and her husband were very aged, uh, and, and Elisha comes and stays with him. Uh, Elisha says, at this time next year, you will have a child. Kind of a familiar story, right? God said the same thing to Abraham, said the same thing to Sarah. Around this time next year, you're going to have a child. And so what does Sarah do? She laughs. And that's how Isaac got his name, because that's what Isaac means in Hebrew, laughter. And so God gives a child to the Shunammite woman. And one day, this child, he's out there with his dad, and they're doing you know, manly stuff. And apparently, he hit his head or something like that. And uh, the child dies from it. And what does this woman do? Does she wail? No. She gets on her donkey, and she rides to Elisha. Her husband says, everything okay? He's like, no, all's well, all's well. She rides, she rides, she rides. She gets to Elisha, and she says in verse 30, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. She had an unshakable faith that caused her to go directly to the man of God. And so she gets to the man of God, and, and it says that Elijah sends Gehazi, his servant, on ahead. And then when he gets there, he lays on the boy, and this boy is raised to life. These two women had their sons raised from the dead. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that he might rise again to a better life. I can't help but think of Job. Uh, Job in verse chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, his wife says to him, you guys know the story. He says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. 
Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not also receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. He, he was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. In chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, notice what Job says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job understood that even though his flesh was decaying, he had within him this promise and this hope and belief that God would raise him up on the last day. And so he was steadfast. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. We know about Paul. Paul was, uh, he was mocked. He was flogged. He was chained to a Roman guard and in prison. We see this in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 16 through 32. I'm not going to read it, but it's uh, in, the, in the Philippian jail. What I want you to catch out of that is as Paul uh, endures the trials, being mocked, uh, being flogged, uh, being in chains and in prison, notice that the Philippian jailer gets saved in all of this. And not only the Philippian jailer, jailer, but his entire household. Um, how about people being stoned? We know that Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60. And by the way, Paul was there. Uh, we see that Stephen uh, tells, uh, tells the, uh, the, the, the religious leaders uh, how they have rejected who God is and how they have uh, walked away from God, and it cut them to the heart. And they picked up stones to kill him. And yet Stephen by faith, testified of the truth. And, you know, sometimes we have to say what is true, even if it means being rejected, even if it means being cast off, even if it means we're going to lose our lives. But Stephen was a faithful witness. People being um, sawn in two, we know from tradition, um, well, it's, it's tradition that says that Isaiah the prophet when he was fleeing the king Manasseh. And by the way, if you don't know the story of Manasseh, go back and read about him. He was a very interesting king. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff there. But uh, it, depending on which version you read, one version says that Elijah saw, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah saw a tree that was hollowed out and he hid in the tree. And so Manasseh told his, uh, his soldiers to saw the tree in half and thus Isaiah was sawed in half. Another version says that uh, uh, Isaiah spoke the unpronounceable name of God, the yod heh vav uh, that uh, in, in Hebrew circles today or in Jewish circles today, they don't pronounce. And when he said that, the tree opened up and he hid himself in the tree and the same thing happened. Manasseh had his men saw him in half. I don't know, but, um, but yeah, that's the background behind that. And then as we get ready to close out, it says, They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves on the earth. I can't help but think of John the Baptist. I can't help but think of Elijah and Elijah um, going about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And truly the world was not worthy. And that's one thing we have to understand is that this world, as beautiful it is, it's a beautiful world, right? There's a lot of wonderful things that we can look at. Yet this is still not our home. I said this a couple Sundays ago. I'll keep saying it again. This is not our home. This is not our home. God has a place for us, a building not made with hands. He has a destiny for us. He has a home for us. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. John chapter 16. Jesus is preparing for us something beautiful and glorious that is not tainted or touched by the sin of this world. And so therefore, this world is not worthy 
This world is not worthy of my affections. This world is not worthy of me investing so much into it, of, of, of basically sacrificing the holiness of God and my walking with the Lord. This world's not worthy of it. And so sometimes we find ourselves, you know, in the past, maybe we found ourselves in a relationship or we found ourselves uh, doing something or, or, you know, in an activity. And, and we're, you know, the world is demanding and saying, give, give, give. And, and, and what's happening is that we're taking, as we give to the world, we're taking from the Lord. We're taking from our peace from God. We're taking from our joy of the Lord. We're not spending time with him. We're not fellowshipping him. I'm telling you, the world is not worthy. But the Lord is. And God said, Jesus says, what does it gain a man? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? The world is not worthy, but the Lord is. And when we give things to him, when we give our lives to him, when we give our talents to him, when we give our energy to him, you know what? He is faithful. He takes what we have and he is able to keep it. He will safeguard it until our day of redemption. He is not so harsh. We read this later on in, or earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10. He's not so hard to forget our labor of love. He's not so, so callous that he, he doesn't remember how we have uh, poured ourselves out for him. God is faithful. He will remember in that day. And it goes on to say, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So these are people, men and women, who were commended by their faith, but notice they did not receive the promise. And what was the promise? Resurrected life. Uh, what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that, that the Lord would send his son and that he would restore the world through the redeeming blood of his son. That redemption has not come. And thank God for us, the redemption has not come yet. Because if God had done this work, when the Jews looked at John the Baptist and they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? You know what they were asking at that time? You know how critical that was? Because if, if John the Baptist said, hey, yeah, I'm Elijah. Because Malachi prophesied that someone would come in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons of the the hearts of the sons to the fathers. It was speaking of the day uh, that coming before the day of the Lord. And if the Jews had received Elijah, I'm sorry, John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah, the work of redemption. That's it. That's it. It's done. But they didn't. They didn't receive him. And 2,000 plus years later, guess who's still getting saved? 2,000 plus years later, guess who the gospel went to? 2,000 plus years later, guess who's hearing the words of Jesus? Right? That work is ongoing. You know why? Because God says it three times in the New Testament, John 3.16. 2 Timothy, we talked about, um, 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4. We talked about that the heart of God is to save as many people as possible. In fact, he doesn't want anybody to not be saved, but we know that not everybody's going to be saved. And so I kind of think of God as like, you know, he's a ship captain, right? And, you know, there's this, um, I'm getting this image from this, one of the Jurassic World movies, whatever, but like, you know, they're like trying to flee the island. It's about to blow up. Hopefully I got the right movie reference this time. And um, it's, there's this volcano, it's blowing up and like, you know, everyone's like trying to leave and, and they're like, you know, um, uh, do we get everybody? Is everybody coming? We're, we, we're waiting as long as we can. I'm waiting as long as we can. I'm not going to leave until we can get as many people on this boat as we possibly can. You know that's what God is doing. He is waiting as long as he can. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. Everybody on the front of the boat is like, dude, we were here three hours ago. Let's go. 
We were here 2,000 years ago. God, let's go. Let's get on with this. God's like, no, no, no. There's still some more coming. I've got more sons and daughters coming. And I'm going to hold this boat here. I'm going to keep waiting until the last son and daughter makes it on. And so that's why when we see they were commended through their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. Because he desires all of us, as many as possible, to come into the saving knowledge of his son Jesus. That's why God doesn't just translate us and take us to heaven the moment we're saved. That's why we're still on this earth, right? That's why we're still enduring the humidity of Houston, right? Right? Hurricanes, category four, good grief, right? Take us home, Lord. No, he still has somebody for us to reach. He still has someone that he wants the gospel message to be heard by not only hearing our words, but watching our lives. Guys, September 11th, you guys have an opportunity if you're looking for a place to serve. That is one of those places where God is still doing a work, and you have an opportunity to be a part of that life-saving work, that lifeboat that God is throwing out there, that God has ready to leave. He's, he's got it through his son, Jesus Christ. You guys have an opportunity to help Heart of Dance. Um, just pray that God would, if God would lead you in that direction. So as some closing thoughts, um, I want to come back to a couple of things. Um, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I think it's very important. Two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about names, and I want to talk about response as we close out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that wasn't their name. You know that? that, that, that those were their Babylonian names. Their real names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and why does that make a difference? Because Shadrach, in 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 the Babylonian version of his name, it just means the great scribe, the royal, royal great scribe, right? So he was probably put in a position where he was to write down or to keep records uh, of things that were going on in the nation of Babylon. Um, Meshach meant guest of the king, and, and Abednego, Abednego means um, servant of Nebo. Nebo was a Babylonian god. He was a patron of the art of writing. He was a god of vegetation. Uh, they used clay tablets. Uh, they used a stylus, and they were basically, um, basically the idea was that uh, he had the power uh, to, to determine the fate of men as he would write these things down. But I want you to hear what their Hebrew names were. Um, Hananiah, also known as Shadrach, means God has favored. Mishael, also known as Meshach, means who is what God is. Azariah, also known as Abinigo, means Jehovah's helped. You see, God has favored because no one is like the Lord, and he has helped us. And when we walk by faith, we will find God helping us. When we walk by faith, we will recognize that there is no one like God. There is no one who can sustain us like the Lord. There is no one who shows favor to us like the Lord when we walk by faith. So it's important that we understand who God is and that we not be conformed to the world's way of thinking. It's important that we not align ourselves with how the world tells us we should look at things, but rather we should align ourselves with how God looks at the world. 
And finally, closing out, back to Exodus chapter 15, when, when God brings the people through the Red Sea, when God brings them across uh, the Red Sea on dry land to the other side, when God causes the waters to collapse and cave in on Pharaoh and his armies, do you know what Moses and Miriam did? They praised the Lord. They praised the Lord. In Exodus 15, we see the song of Moses. You know some of the things he said here? He said, verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And in verse 20, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Guys, as I close here, I want you to understand the walk of faith is a walk of difficulty. It's a walk of trials. It's a walk where we will find things um, just we didn't anticipate. We'll find ourselves tested. We will find ourselves sometimes even doubting. But the walk of faith is a walk where at the end, when we come to the end, we see the glory of God and our response should be to praise him. Our response should be to give him glory. Our response should be to tell the world about the goodness of God. We, we were at um, the Weldon's house Thursday. We watched uh, episode two. One. One. My bad. Episode one of The Chosen. And the previous episode, the last episode of, of season one, uh, it, it chronicles Jesus speaking to the woman, at the, Samar- uh, the woman of Samaria, John chapter four. And she goes off and she tells everybody. She's like, I'm going to tell everybody. And, you know, the actor's like, I, yeah, I was hoping you would. I was counting on that, right? God's counting on us to tell people about him. When he takes us through our trials, when he takes us through the waters, he's counting on us to proclaim the goodness of God, that he has come to set captive those who are uh, set at liberty, those who are captive uh, to do the work and, and the destruction powers of the enemy, that he has come and he has come with healing in his wings. He has come with grace. He has come with peace. He has brought us closer to the Father. He is counting on us to tell the world. And your world may be two people. Your world may be 3,000. But whatever the world is that God has placed you in, all right, let them know. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We ask that you would, Lord, make your word sure in our hearts, Lord God. Lord, um, establish it. Lord, keep it. Lord, help us to, you know how we struggle, Lord. We just, sometimes we hear the message. Sometimes we read a passage and then we go off to our life and we completely forgot. Um, And we know sometimes that the enemy brings the cares of life and Sometimes there's, there's things in our own heart, Lord God, that, that choke out the truth, Lord. But we just pray that right now that you would hold fast this word. As we see these examples in chapter 11, um, knowing, uh, Lord God, that you are imminently capable of doing the same works through us that you've done through them. That though we are last, we don't have to be the least. Though we are set apart from them, we can be associated with the rest of them. Lord God, you are wanting to do in us what you've done through them. So we just pray that in the name of Jesus.